morning again. King David wrote these very famous words in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Was that just a general statement uh, that God's word lights the way, so to speak, for us as we walk through this world and go through our lives so that we know where to go and where not to go and what to do and what not to do? That's a part of its meaning. But when we consider the whole scope of the Bible and discover that God's Word is God's Son, we can understand the lamp and light metaphor to be saying something more about what the light is meant to lead us to, where it wants us to go. The true light that is already shining means to take us somewhere specific, to the final day where we will behold our Lord Jesus face to face. And as a witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, the Bible points us to eternal life. If the words of this book are not true, nobody has any hope whatsoever. We are as lost in the darkness as everyone and anyone else are. So whether or not the Bible is true remains of the utmost importance, not just for the world, but also for the church. And Second Peter is a letter written because the reliability, mainly the authority of God's Word was being challenged in the church. Specifically the doctrine of the apostles that Jesus Christ was going to return in power and glory one day was not just being doubted but arrogantly ridiculed by some in the church. So the tone of Second Peter is much more polemical. There's an inside fight going on than it is pastoral. First Peter was so pastoral. In Second Peter, Peter is not thrilled with the situation for which he's, or about which he's writing. <clears throat> Peter presented his eyewitness experience of the fact of Jesus' return that the transfiguration he saw confirmed or proclaimed as an even greater witness to the truth of Jesus' return in glory in order that these believers would do two things. Pay attention to the Word of God as a light for their paths and then understand God's Word as the sole source of authority in the church. Words matter. The authority of the Bible as the sole source of the church's and the Christian's authority matters. In a world of darkness, the Word of God is the perfect lamp that lights the way to Jesus Christ. If you are able, I ask you to stand with me as we read the Holy Word of God in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. And I'll read through verse 21 this morning. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Our Father, your word is truth. Give me the grace to proclaim it and give us all the grace to hear and believe it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The apostles, those disciples of Jesus, if you remember, minus Judas Iscariot, and then plus Matthias, and then Paul, were the sole leaders of the early church that began at Pentecost. But as time went on, and people were being saved, and churches in different cities and regions were being established, almost in concentric circles away from the center of Jerusalem, the apostles directed the churches to begin governing themselves through groups of elders or pastors with deacons serving the daily needs of the church. This is all recorded for us in the book of Acts. The reason the church was led and shaped eventually by the apostles is because of the unique role that God gave to them in the creation of the church. In Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, Jesus Christ opened their minds, those men, to understand the Scriptures, which in some way has to must have been communicated to Matthias later. And then if you remember, Jesus appeared to Paul in person to teach him. But these men were the ones Jesus taught how to properly understand and interpret the Bible. They are absolutely crucial for us. If we don't have the New Testament teaching of the apostles, it is impossible to interpret the Old Testament or the New Testament correctly. That's how important they are. That's the office, the place that God gave to the apostles. They were given sole authority by Jesus to do that. But He also told them in Luke 24 to wait in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. Right Before they would begin to fulfill the Great Commission. This happens in Acts chapter 2. This was the day of Pentecost when these men and those waiting in the upper room with them, 120 persons in all, were filled with the Holy Spirit at this unique one-time event in history. So whatever the apostles taught about the Old Testament, whatever the apostles wrote, which we have as the New Testament, is the very Word of God explained, written down, interpreted, and confirmed. All right, They had a unique one-time place and authority that no one has ever had or will have since in the history of the church for the sake of the church. But even in the very time in which they lived and were writing, that authority was questioned. Liberalism regarding the authority and inspiration of Scripture is not a 20th or even a 21st century phenomenon. There is nothing new under the sun, not even the way in which people doubt and question the Word of God, some of them even claiming to be on His side. The Apostle Peter was being accused of teaching cleverly devised myths, like this ridiculous fable he apparently was teaching about um, the powerful return of Jesus one day to the earth. That's why we're reading the verses that we're reading and why Peter says we here, when he starts out we, these apostles, that's the we here, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to present two evidences for why what he teaches is true. And the way in which they go together is crucial for us. First, Peter reveals that he didn't make it up. He saw it with his own eyes. He heard it with his own 
ears in 16 through 18. So while divine revelation takes the Holy Spirit ultimately to accept or understand, it is also true that some things just actually happened and have been recorded as they happened like anything else that's actual history. So Peter refers to the transfiguration that's recorded in the Gospels when Jesus took him and James and John up on the mountain. You remember that? And they saw the appearance of Jesus' face change while he was praying. And his clothing became the dazzling white of God's Shekinah glory. And Moses and Elijah were there talking with him. And as they began to leave, Peter pipes up and says to Jesus, let's build three tents. It's really good what's happening here. I'm glad that I'm here. Let's build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Three tabernacles. But as he was speaking... Meaning so well, the cloud, which since the days of Moses signified the presence of the glory of the Lord, comes and overshadows them. And the very voice of God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, indicating Jesus, my chosen one. This is the one God has set on Zion, His holy hill. Listen to Him. Right? The other two are done speaking now. Listen to Jesus. Peter was only one of three human beings that saw and heard this happen. And what we now find in this letter, remember, after Jesus had opened Peter's mind to understand the Scriptures, after Peter had been filled with the Holy Spirit, what we learn about that moment here is it was evidence that Jesus Christ would powerfully return in glory because He was God's Son. He was God's King. This is what the second coming will reveal to the entire cosmos. And this is what the transfiguration, that moment revealed to Peter. In verse 18, he saw the majesty of Jesus with his own eyes. He heard the voice of God with his own ears, confirming the identity of Jesus as the one who would usher in this great day and final day of the Lord in all of its fullness. That's one reason why Peter, why what Peter was teaching wasn't a myth. Peter saw, he heard God reveal Jesus' glory. But notice something that I think is even more important here. This is very interesting for us this morning. Peter isn't finally going to ground the authority of the apostles' teaching in personal experience, even though he had eyewitness testimony. That's not ultimately why Peter is going to say, you have to believe what I'm telling you. The catechism of the Catholic Church gives a very unique and powerful place to Peter, even among the apostles. Listen to this. This is from part one of the catechism, the profession of faith of the Catholic Church. This is from 1994. This hasn't changed. The Lord, quoting now, the Lord made Simon alone whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the Pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is Peter, right? Now listen, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ 
and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. A power which he, the Pope, the successor of Peter, can always exercise unhindered. Wow. So does that make sense, right? This, the, to the Catholics, the Pope is the living continuation of Peter's unique place, as they were describing here in the church. That's not my evaluation of what Catholics believe. I'm quoting what they believe here. This is their own statement. This is what they call apostolic succession. And Peter's place carries on literally and bodily through the Pope. It's, 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 that's how they see that office. Now, think about what's happening here in our text this morning. Okay? What is Peter trying to accomplish? If there was ever a time when Peter could have put this plan of apostolic succession in place, right? If there was ever a time for him to have said, listen, I'm putting all false teachers and everyone else on notice. If you want to know what is actually true and from God, you listen to me and you listen to me alone. And then to all those who will take this unique place for me after I die, if there was ever a time for him to do that, considering the context here, it would be this moment. And yet if we look at the context of Second Peter, or, or again, if, if we look at the context here, we would fully expect to be learning here what it will look like for Christians in succeeding generations to follow in the way of these once authoritative apostles. The way that Jesus established for His church long after Peter does die. If there was a time for that to be explained as that's being explained in that catechism, it would be here. And yet... Peter, immediately after telling us, you don't know what I saw, you don't know what I heard, immediately after telling us that, he submits that amazing personal experience that he did have to the final and ultimate authority of God's objective word. He's going to tell us here that a person's willingness to submit him or herself to the authority and teaching of the Bible alone is the way that you would follow in the actual faith of the apostles. That's precisely the point he's trying to make here. That's what he's saying, that authority in the era after the apostles is not based on individual peoples and persons. It's placed solely on the very words of God given to us in His Word. That's His whole point here. The purpose of citing his eyewitness evidence then is not to say, I'm Peter, I saw it, so listen to me. No, he was there when God said, listen to my son. What Peter's eyewitness evidence does then is more fully confirm the words of the Old Testament prophets about Jesus Christ. Peter verifies what we read in Hebrews 1.1, that God did speak to our fathers by the prophets. Look at verse 19 there. And we, now the we is Peter and the apostles, his audience, and you and I this morning, we have the prophetic word, the Old Testament witness to the great day of the Lord when Jesus returns and consummates the kingdom. We have that word more fully confirmed. See, what did the eyewitness evidence do? It confirmed the written prophecy. Right? It wasn't a separate word from God. It was a confirmation of what has always been the word of God. Maybe the teaching of Jesus returning in power was a little too threatening 
and inconvenient for people who didn't want to recognize him as a true king. So what was their strategy? What did they do? They wanted to make that teaching of Peter look stupid. Right? It's a cleverly devised myth, they're saying. That's the strategy. We, we, you and I continue to hear arguments against the truth of the faith along these lines. Right? You believe in a book that was written thousands of years ago? That's what you've staked your life on. Religion and God might have been useful in times past, but now we have scientific truth that's been more fully figured out to show us the way you believe in old wives' tales, as if what's in the Bible is against science, which it isn't. Right? But you believe in something old. You believe in something archaic, and it's embarrassing and silly. Educated people don't think that way. The coming of which Peter speaks here is the second coming. That's the event that sets the tone throughout the whole letter. He references that the, that, that the coming in chapter 3, verse 4, and again in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. But more enlightened teachers have arrived on the scene in the audience to which Peter's writing, apparently. Maybe they sound better. Maybe they dress cooler. Right? Maybe they offer more plausible arguments. What is all this grim teaching about Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead? Right? The, the apostles are dying out right in front of us and Jesus hasn't appeared yet. So what is this teaching? Chapter 2 will allow us to dig into their accusations a little more deeply, but suffice to say here, their reaction to Peter's teaching about the second coming has a lot more to do with their desires than it has to do with what truth actually is. And Peter writes so that everyone who listens to his teaching would know that everything he taught, including his view on the second coming of Jesus in judgment, didn't rest on made-up fairy tales, but on the strength and authority and reliability of the Hebrew Scriptures. Specifically here, what the prophets taught that confirmed the truth of his own personal experience. Notice that Peter deflects away from himself. And he's an apostle. Right? I... No preacher today, no preacher since has had the authority that the apostles have. I can't tell you that you have to listen to me. And I can't do that. Peter could. But he deflects. Right? He wants us to know. He deflects away from himself even though he has eyewitness evidence and he deifies, canonizes, if you will, the living and written Word of God as our sole authority in the age after the apostles. Nobody after these men was going to have an experience of any kind or revelation of any kind that would trump that of the apostles. He submitted his experience to what he read in the Old Testament prophets. It's amazing. He submitted his experience to what had been written long before he was ever born. He wanted his audience to know that what was true for him about Revelation had always been true for every prophet of God, everyone sent from God. He's arguing here that the Bible isn't a myth. It isn't the stuff of legend and fairy tales. Nothing written down here, that's what he's telling us, nothing written down in this book came from the will of man. The Bible is not the record of individuals telling us what they think God meant or what they feel God was saying. That is not what the Bible is. He wants us to know this first of all. Verses 
20 and 21 that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's use of words here is interesting. What's been given to him by the Spirit, carried along, helps us realize that God didn't put people in a trance and dictate to them what to write. He prepared specific people through their birth and surroundings, etc., to communicate His words. The biblical authors, I think, genuinely spoke their own words, which were the words God wanted to use. He caused the words that He wanted written to be written. This is radically different from a book whose authority is grounded in experiences. No prophecy that's in the Bible is the result of someone's opinion. And it isn't that Peter means only the prophecies in the Bible are inspired. He doesn't mean that. He means that because the prophecies are also God's objective holy word, they are to be treated like inspired Scripture also. So, beloved, our experiences, our beliefs, our opinions, they are not what has authority in the church. We see this. It is a theological tragedy when a church claims on paper to believe that God's Word is her sole authority and is inerrant and inspired and infallible to then conduct itself as though the opinions of people are what shape the church's structure or government or practice or belief or anything else. Our plausible arguments, our cleverly devised myths, they mean nothing. They hold no water. But how often do we hear nowadays in the church, how often are we led and shaped by statements like, well, I just think that if it was up to me, I, I, would, I just personally feel that... And then we, we have to listen to that depending on who's speaking. No, we don't. No, we don't. It has no authority in the church. None. When personal experiences and personal opinions, whenever, whenever somebody said, well, God told me, okay, I bet he told you what you wanted to hear. I bet he told you what you already thought was true. That's convenient how that works. Thanks, God, for the... We're, we're, when personal experiences, personal opinions are not submitted to the Word of God to determine whether or not they're valid, they're not just irrelevant. They're dangerous. We're all too quick to say, well, I mean, if that's what you feel, I mean, if you really think that's important, then if that's your opinion, I guess we have to listen to it. it, it that's, that's the root of conflict and despair in the church and in our lives. That's why church becomes a drag when it's meant to be an outpost of heaven on earth. We're held hostage by feelings and opinions when the Word of God is the sole authority in the church. I can't remember the last time as a pastor where there was a church-wide argument over whether or not the Bible was inspired by God. I've never had to argue for that. Or, you know, whether or not uh, Jesus was born of a virgin or something like that. There are churches, unfortunately, where they do have those fights. I've never personally experienced that. 
what I have experienced and what I think is most common is most of our conflict and discord in the church, in any church, comes from giving more authority to traditions and man-made ideas than we give to the Word of God, regardless of what we say about the Word of God on paper. Beloved, God's holy Word has every right to rule over us and challenge our opinions, change our traditions if need be, or we're not a church. We're just a religious club. Everything gets submitted to Jesus in His Word. Everything. And beloved, that isn't about who holds the power. This is about our hope and our faith. Do we know why the Bible is so trustworthy? Because it isn't anybody's opinion. Peter gives the rights and privileges and power of unhindered authority, not to himself, but to the living and written Word of God. So for every person that wants to claim their experiences or their feelings as a reason for why they should be listened to, they need to be taken to Peter, who would say, I think... Look, I'll raise you whatever experience you had with what I saw on that mountain and I still won't tell you that you should believe something just because I saw it. So experiencing is not essential for believing. Reading the Word of God is essential for believing. Experiences come and go. They come and go. The Word of God stands. It holds. It doesn't change. Why do we believe that Jesus will powerfully return in glory on the fixed day of the Lord in the future? Why do we as Christians believe this? Because the prophets told us that. And then Jesus even proved that He was the one who would return to Peter and James and John up on that mountain. But why this morning? Why does it matter if we believe that Jesus will powerfully return in glory on the fixed day of the Lord in the future? Because that is part of the Word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Verse 19, And we have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day of which He is speaking in verse 16. Right? The day of His coming, until that day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is a picture of the way in which at His coming, when that day comes, Jesus Christ will finally end all the doubt and uncertainty and darkness that clouds us and weighs us down. That day will put an end to it forever. There will be no more need for faith. For we will have sight We will see His face. We will behold Him. Everybody that believes will have their opportunity forever to feel the scars by which their redemption was purchased, beloved. Because in His light, we see eternal life. Beloved, run to the truth of God's Word all the time. Run to it. Run to Jesus. Don't walk. Run. Follow the path He gives you because it ends in His arms. 
When I was little, we lived in a couple different apartment complexes throughout my early life that were government subsidized. And so they were not always the safest place to be out. So I had a rule that many of us probably had, if any of us have ever lived anywhere near streetlights when we were little, when the, when the streetlights came on, it was time to go home. And for my parents, that meant the minute you could hear the buzz of them lighting up, you better be home before they're fully lit. It was too dark for us to be out safely anymore. Beloved, let's all get home before dark. Let's all get home before dark together. You know how we do that? We put all the personal stuff aside. We stand on the Word together and we don't move. That's how we do that. That's how we do that. We would do well to pay attention to the streetlight called God's Word. Unlike every word of man, every word and promise of man, the Bible has been fully confirmed. It is true. It is real. We live in the dark here. We, we, we don't realize it because the eyes of our souls have adjusted to it, but we're in the pitch black darkness. But daylight is coming. And the pathway to it is found in the words that reveal the light of the world to us, Jesus Christ. God's Word does not bring its peace and sustaining power to our souls because it answers every question that rises when we can't find our way. It doesn't do that. But it brings peace and sustaining power because it is the only true Word and it is the only saving Word. It is a means by which God projects, if you will, the promises of eternity into the hearts now today of His sojourning, exilic people. Whether or not the Scriptures have been inspired by God, written by Him through the hands and personalities and words of men, is not important primarily for arguing theology. Not primarily. It's important because you and I need a reliable lamp in this dark world. You were waiting for daylight to shine right now. But the true light is already shining, and it's shining in this book that tells us how to get to it. In a world of darkness, the Word of God is the perfect lamp that lights the way to Jesus Christ. And this morning, God's Word is calling to each and every one of us to believe on the Son. If your desire this morning is to be forgiven for your sins, for your rebellion against God that maybe you didn't even know you were doing. But as the Word has been read, you something is stirred and you realize I'm God's enemy. If your desire is to be forgiven for that and come into fellowship with the One who made you, come to Him this morning. And by that I mean believe in Him. Believe in Him. Come to Him. If your desire is to be rooted and grounded in the one rock that will not fail, come to Him this morning. You may do that right where you are, but you're welcome to come forward this morning and pray with me. Pray with somebody that will come and pray with you. Just tell us either way, whether you're doing in your seat or whether you come, just let us know. I want to celebrate with you and bring you into the family If this is the church you want to make your home and become a member of and 
walk this path with us. This morning is the time to come and do that. But no matter what, don't trust in anything but Jesus. Nothing. No one. Just Jesus. For He is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. June is going to come to the front. And the front will be open for you to come and pray as we sing. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. The sole authority of Your church rests in what was written long before Your church ever existed before any of us ever existed and will remain long after we are gone should your son not yet return in our lifetimes. But Father, he will return. For every word of yours proves true. You do not lie. You do not change. And therefore, you're the only real hope any of us have. And so God, this morning I pray that you would move by your resurrection power in the hearts of those that came in here this morning maybe not even knowing they were your enemy, Father. And we're not here because we're above them. We're here because that's where we were once. And we're only here because as the song we sang before the sermon said, you were gracious to create faith in us and give us the ability to believe. So, Father, nobody here can stand over anyone else this morning. But we want to stand together arm in arm. So would you do your work of resurrection in the lives of those who in this moment don't believe in you? Would you bring them, Father? Would they believe? Would they come? Would they confess? And Father, would you watch over the people here that are already believing, for they need the exact same thing. We need Christ to be our light, to be our lamp, shining in this dark place until that day dawns and all doubt and all burdens are removed. So God, be with us, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.